Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. On this series, clinical investigators visit oncologists in community-based practice. And for this program, Dr. John Marshall meets up with Dr. Kurt Sabbath and patients from his practice with colorectal cancer, beginning with an older woman who initially presented with colon cancer and metastatic disease, as described by Dr. Sabbath. This is a 74-year-old woman who presented last May with nausea, vomiting, and some right upper quadrant pain. She had a six-month history of weight loss, anorexia, fatigue, and shortness of breath. And this was an exceedingly vibrant and active woman, and this just is not who she was. She went to a local walk-in and was found to be severely anemic to the point that she required uh, transfusion. When she was seen by her primary care doctor, he noted a mass in the right upper quadrant and sent her for, after the blood, sent her for CT imaging. The CT scan contained multiple lung metastases, and the liver had multiple bilateral metastases. She had a 4.5 by 3 centimeter mass in the ascending colon, and there was also some other associated mesenteric fullness. Now, when did you see her? At that point or later on? Oh, no, I unfortunately saw her post-op, and this is one of the things that John and I talked about, that when we see these types of patients preoperatively, our goal is, you know, we'll treat them right up front. We talked about, you know, what would be some of the indications for surgery versus waiting, but be that as it may, she was seen by the surgeon, and I met her post-op. John, there's been a lot of recent discussion about management of patients presenting with metastatic disease. Any comments about this patient? We need to be careful about this pendulum that swings back and forth. We went from a world where taking the primary out was the rule to now where we do everything in our power to leave that damn primary in there. Well, it's somewhere in between. How do you decide who the right patient is to have the primary taken out? And I generally judge it based on, well, what else is going on? How extensive is the systemic disease? You know, is there time to do a laparoscopic colectomy and heal up and then do chemo afterwards? Let's face it, if you're talking about long-haul treatment for somebody who's not going to be resectable ever, sometimes it's nice to have that primary out of there. So I think that's a judgment call. I think it should be made in conjunction with an oncologist because the surgical reflex is just take it out. You know, I have a case right now of a guy, young guy, asymptomatic primary. They just took it out, bunch of liver mets. His wound dehissed, had peritonitis, and it took two months for him to heal before we could even consider chemotherapy, which, of course, is harmful to this guy. So there are times when you would rather leave that primary in there, but let's not make it an across-the-board recommendation. And I take it that this woman actually underwent upfront resection of her colon primary. Oh, yeah, she did. And part of the problem was that she actually had a very slow recovery from her surgery. Her performance status was poor. Her appetite was poor. As a result, she had significant edema, and this affected her ability to recover. She was treated with diuretics, and prior to chemotherapy, her liver, before we could even get to treat her, that her liver was enlarging and becoming more painful. We had her see the oncology clinical nutritionist, and that was very helpful in getting her protein intake improved. That alone made her feel significantly better so that she was able to recover and chemotherapy with Folfox and Bevacizumab was initiated. 
So within this context, we should mention the data set from Memorial that was presented at ASCO last year and then published in the JCO looking at patients who had asymptomatic primary colon cancers with synchronous metastatic disease who got chemo and BEV in half the cases. And ultimately, only about 7% of these patients actually required surgery for palliation of the primary tumors. And the ones who got BEV didn't seem to have any more problems with the surgery. So we'll have more data from this in the NSABPC10 Phase 2 trial of full FOXBEV for patients with asymptomatic primary colon cancers and metastatic disease. So let's get back to your patient. I see that she had a KRAS wild tumor. That is correct. So what happened on the full FOXBEV? She felt dramatically better. The liver discomfort got better. She actually had hypertension and proteinuria. We did a 24-hour urine, confirmed that she had less than 500 milligrams of protein, so we took care of that. We treated her hypertension, and then everything was going along swimmingly until she developed a major reaction to oxaliplatin. Hmm. What happened? She couldn't breathe. She was hypotensive. Her hands were tingling, and she related to us. This was the first time in her entire course where she thought, I really am going to die. Wow. How many times did she had the oxali at that point? This was about her fifth treatment that this happened. And other treatments went fine? not even a whiff of a problem. They happened to be in the clinic at the time. They hung up the oxaliplatin, and then all of a sudden you got a call, Dr. Sabbath, please come down to the chemo room immediately. And one nurse had her hand on the phone to call 911, and just then she turned around, but it was very, very dramatic. And she said, clearly, I'm not having that ever again. John, have you seen this happen to this extent? Yeah, it's sort of uh, classic, I guess. We don't see it as often. It seemed like we saw it a lot when we first started giving this drug. And I should knock wood, we haven't seen too many recently in our shop, but we're due. They happen. They're allergic-type reactions, and it really is very difficult to give it again. When they're milder, sometimes you can slow the infusion down and get away with some more doses. But the reality is, even with that, most people become increasingly sensitized to it and develop these more acute reactions. So a lot of folks have looked at trying to desensitize. I have to confess to never having tried to do it because in many ways, why? Why am I risking that and how much value is this drug on the table? Really, so in my opinion, the success around desensitization and the value of the drug is sort of, I haven't gone there, but many of my colleagues disagree and try to desensitize. Well, it sounds like this woman's having a good response. Of course, you don't know if it's a 5-a-few oxali or BEV, but somewhere along the line, something seems to be working. Where is she right now, Kurt? Okay, well, what happened was her CEA went from 2,200 down to 18. The liver mets decreased in size and really became calcific. After 12 cycles of treatment, her disease was stable. We just kept treating her just minus the oxali. Then at that point, she developed a non-healing ulcer of her leg, and that just kept getting worse and worse and felt very uncomfortable about giving her chemotherapy in the face of this open wound. And so she wound up stopping treatment for a period of about four months until it healed. Where was the ulcer and what do you think it was from? It was anterior tibial. I think she initially bumped, it was a small trauma and it just became worse. Even though she doesn't have significant coronary disease or known symptomatic peripheral vascular disease, she is 74 and I presume the combination 
of age, vascular disease, just kept it from healing. Let's face it, the drugs we were given are designed to impair wound healing. I mean, that's what they do for a living. And so, in many ways, it was a nice bioassay that you were having biologic effect. And it seems like it's having a pretty good biologic effect on the tumor. I've heard people say when they see liver mets calcify that that's a particularly good outcome. Is that your experience, John? Yeah, I would say I agree with that. And sometimes these things will stay quiet for a prolonged period of time. The debate about do you keep maintenance therapy going or not is probably the hottest subject in the colon cancer world in 2010. The concept of maintaining bevacizumab has been tested in a clinical trial that we'll see results of. It's a controversial trial in design and result, but the suggestion is from the results that single-agent bevacizumab versus a complete holiday was beneficial. And this would really be the first time that single-agent Bev, even though lots of people do it, has really demonstrated a clinical benefit different than the single-agent refractory study of Helen Chen's where patients were growing, so it failed to catch progressing cancer, but what is its role as a maintenance drug? And this was really the first point on to measure that. Interesting. So let me clarify for our audience that you're talking about the study from Spain that's going to be presented this year's ASCO that shows that maintenance single-agent BEV following induction with six cycles of BEV capecitabine oxaliplatin gave equivalent results to continuation of the combination of BEV and capoxali. It reminds me a little bit of the Optimox-type trials that have been done. Right. So the Optimox studies were pre-BEV, and we're using chemotherapy, 5-FU versus nothing, if you will. So this was the first sort of post-biologic study. And interestingly, they didn't maintain the 5-FU and the BEV. They maintained just the BEV. So we'll see the results. And again, makes the oral session because of its positive result. But I think we'll need to scrutinize the detail of the trial design. But certainly those docs who've been doing this kind of off the cuff will have justification now to do it. So what's this woman's current situation? And what did you see when you visited with her today? Well, because of the lesion on the leg, we had stopped all of her treatment about four months ago. Her leg has finally healed, but now she recently presented with increasing fatigue, decreased appetite, and an enlarging liver. It was more symptomatic. The CT scan confirmed the presence of progressive disease, and the CEA had risen up to 385, so from 18 to 385. So she was clearly more symptomatic, and we needed to restart treatment, and she just got her first treatment two days ago. With what? She was treated with fulfiry and bevacizumab. So the ulcer is now healed? Ulcer is totally healed, and she picked up her leg and showed us she has not bad gams for a 74-year-old woman, and she is very relieved about restarting treatment, both physically and psychologically. John, what about the choice of systemic therapy here, restarting the BEV as opposed to bringing an EGFR antibody in? It is the biggest question right now we have in metastatic disease is when to play these drugs. I mean, technically, no biologic has an indication in second line. If you look at the BEV indication, it's first or second. And so this BEV beyond progression concept that many of us do routinely is sort of bending the literal rules of the indication. If you look at the strict indications of the EGFR drugs, they're in arenatecan refractory or in patients who have already had all the other chemotherapies. So second, typically third line indications. So 
bringing a drug in at this point is almost anything's the limit. If you're a U.S. oncology physician, your guidelines actually don't really put in a biologic in the second line unless a clinical trial is on board. In fact, in the United States, the cooperative group trial, the IBET study, is looking at BEV versus cetuximab. The SPIRIT study is looking at BEV versus panitumumab in this setting. That being said, in a patient that's not curable, the whole BEV beyond progression certainly is a reasonable approach, something that many of us do. It is also reasonable to come back and give her an EGFR drug. It's also reasonable to give her a TCAN single agent. It would be also reasonable if she hadn't had the oxaliplatin reaction to come back with that drug as well. So it's a chess game, right? So how do you play the chess game? Which drugs do you bring in where? That's really dealer's choice. We bring some bias to the table. These clinical trials will answer if there's one biologic over another. What about in this situation, John, given the fact that it's kind of controversial what to do, what do you think you might have been thinking about? Yeah, I like the choice here. I think this is a woman that's having a very normal quality of life. She's got a lot of personal issues, but she is in plays. She's out there in a public way. You know, while she said she'd tolerate any toxicity, including rash, we could hold off on that. And so I think the choice of therapy is quite a good one. I would like to put in that we are getting better control over rash. You know, this whole prospect of giving preemptive therapy does work based on the STEP clinical trial and our own personal clinical evidence. You'd never give a patient a dose of cisplatin without intensive antiemetic management. The same is true for these drugs, that we all should begin incorporating into our management this skin prophylaxis before giving an EGFR or as you're giving an EGFR agent. Can you kind of go through exactly what you do and what's been seen in studies like the STEP trial? Yeah, so what this study did was take patients who were going on to chemo plus, in this case, panitumumab. Half the patients did it the way we've been doing it. In other words, don't act until rash occurs. The other half were getting treatment right from the beginning on the first dose. And the treatment was a multi-pronged approach that sounds probably complicated, but actually can be played out pretty simply. It was moisturizer a couple of times a day, sunblock, not just if you're going on a cruise, but when you wake up in the morning, there was a topical, just, you know, hydrocortisone cream, and then oral antibiotics, doxycycline. Now, none of us really knows which of those four pieces helped, but the results showed that the patients who got preemptive therapy actually had a much less grade three, four skin reaction. So everybody sort of smoldered a little bit with their skin toxicity, but didn't get that bright pustular acneiform reaction. It was controlled. Now, in my bias, I actually think the sunblock and moisturizer are probably important. Others believe the antibiotics and the like. Some are the topical steroids. But in every patient, we start that discussion when we're going to use an EGFR drug that, yes, there's a rash, but we have better ways of controlling it now. This may seem like a simple question, but where exactly do you put the sunblock and the moisturizer? I mean, just the face and upper body or where? One belief is that these drugs are such exquisite photosensitizers that 
you need to put it on any sun-exposed area. So what I mean is not if you're going to go play 18 holes of golf, but if you're just getting up because you get light through the windows and through your lamps and all of that. So, you know, certainly sun-exposed areas, moisturizer, face, chest, back, and arms are probably the premier places you need to put it. And just a couple of times a day, and let's face it, you go to the Clinique counter, you can get a very good moisturizer with sunblock in it. So that's twice a day. You get up in the morning, you put it on when you go to bed at night, and that knocks two of the four things out. The antibiotics, I think, probably are important. And as people start to do this, they'll develop their own strategies of what the key elements are. You mentioned the step trial, which looked at panitumumab, as long as you brought that up. Anything that we know in terms of the difference between PMAB and cetuximab, both in terms of side effects and rash, as well as efficacy? Yeah, I think if you look at the last line trials, both of them used as single agents. One, we borrowed Canadians. One, we borrowed Eastern Europeans to do our study. They have exactly the same outcome. The same response rate benefit, almost identical curves. So as single agents in refractory patients, they play the same. In combinations, as you move them earlier, they look like they're playing the same as well. Now, some believe one's more immunologically active than the other. The clinical data doesn't really bear that out. Others say the toxicity of one is worse than the other, at least from a skin perspective. I don't think that's true. I think the biggest difference, quite honestly, is you need to pre-medicate on one because of infusion reactions, and you don't on another. So there's simplicity of administration from the panitumumab, and particularly if you live in that part of the country where the hypersensitivity reactions are so high, you really just start with panitumumab. I mean, do you use panitumumab yourself? I do. I've sort of more recently incorporated it quite regularly, even in combinations, but we use both. I mean, we have clinical trials with both and the like, but now that we have both first and second line metastatic combination data, I'm feeling more comfortable of bringing that drug into these settings. It's interesting. We asked her specifically, we were talking about where we were going in the future with treatment, and we asked her if we had a drug that could be helpful but caused acne and a rash, how would you feel about that? She said, you know, that wouldn't bother me. I would do whatever I need to do to control things. So I sort of got a preview of how she'll approach it on the day that we have to talk about an anti-EGFR therapy. Have you gotten to the point of discussing with her some of her more deeper concerns as she you know, deals with this incurable situation? Yeah, well, it's actually an important part of her life. She was divorced many years ago. She has a daughter with very significant psychiatric issues that the daughter will often be verbally aggressive with her. And I think she's had to really struggle with how to take care of herself, how to take care of her daughter. She's described the fact that at a certain point in her life, she had to just say, I've done as much as I could for my daughter. For my own health, I need to move forward. What is interesting is her daughter has been very dependent on her her whole life. And we asked specifically the question, what's going to happen when you're not there you know, to your daughter? And she said, you know, I'm not sure she'll be able to take care of herself. She is finally starting to realize that mommy is not always going to be there and is going to have to deal with these things. But on the other hand, well, as much grief as her daughter gives her, she has unbelievably wonderful friends and a terrific support system. And that has really gotten her through. I asked her specifically about, she's clearly a caregiver herself. I mean, she was a special needs teacher. She's just is a nurturer by profession, if you will. And I asked her, well, who's going to take care of you? 
And she basically said, well, she was going to take care of herself. And I didn't push it because this was not my place. But, you know, she is going to confront that time when she really can't. And we all have patients whose defense mechanisms are such that keeping busy, taking care of themselves is so important to them that if we take that away from them, they've lost, if you will. They really turn the switch off. And, you know, it's a very difficult kind of patient to manage at that point because you don't want to take that away. But at the same time, you want to prepare as best you can for that moment when she's not going to be able to get out of that bed and the daughter's not going to be responsible enough to care for her. And I think she knows that and she's preparing, but it's always a challenge.